Welcome to Hacked in the Dark, a podcast featuring Forge in the Dark games and their designers. I'm Justin. And I'm Ian. We'll be your hosts today for Crafting Characters with Eric Bernhardt, and we're going to talk about Brinkwood. Welcome, Eric. Thanks. Glad to be here. I'm really excited about Brinkwood, and if you're listening to this when this episode has come out, you might already know about the Brinkwood Kickstarter. Eric, would you like to give us a little summary of what Brinkwood is? Like, give us your pitch and why? tell us why people should back it. Sure. So the simplest pitch I can give is Robin Hood versus Vampires. Mm. I always say to people, if that catches your interest, you should definitely check us out and see if it's something you want to look more into. The reason to back the Kickstarter, I guess, would really just come down to, you know, if you have interest in Blades in the Dark games, if you have interest in vampires or revolutionary fiction or just new and hopefully creative ways of doing things, I would say definitely give us at least check us out. We have a preview up as well of the game that's pretty near complete. So I always say tell people, you know, check that out if you're not sure about any of the rules or if it's something you really want to contribute to, uh, because that's really the best way to know if the game is going to be for you is to read it for yourself. And we'll be talking more about the game and people can maybe judge for themselves if it's something they'd like to like to play or back. Right, right. But if if I don't sell it, you know, <laughs> go read the text. <laughs> I'm personally a fan of the game and the art. And honestly, the theme of revolution is really why I kind of wanted to have you on. Mm -hmm. I think it's I think it's a topical theme. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also it's also really cool. And it's something that makes Brinkwood special. Yeah. As far as Forge in the Dark Games. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd agree. So today we're going to, as we usually do, we're going to kind of focus down. And we want to talk to you about Brinkwood in general. Mm -hmm. But. We also want to talk spe more specifically about character creation mm -hmm. today. So we know what Brinkwood is about. You gave us our pitch, but could you tell us a little bit more about what you think is special about Brinkwood? I think there are kind of several things. You know, you mentioned revolution. Brinkwood is really a game about uh, this idea that you're this band of rebels in this what we call castle punk world fighting against this oppressive regime of vampires that are both literally and figuratively draining the life out of your country and out of your world. And there have been other games that have kind of dealt with that revolutionary angle. Um, you know, you can look at stuff like Spire, or you can look at stuff... Uh, I, I think even Sean Nettner recently released a supplement for Blades in the Dark itself that kind of goes into maybe some of the revolutionary politics within just Blades in the Dark. So it's not as unique as it was maybe when I started writing it, but um, I do think it's still <laughs> kind of a strong point. And I do think the blend of that vampires and kind of this Castlevania aesthetic definitely sets it aside. And we do do some kind of cool design things as well that we'll talk some more about, I, I'm sure. Eric, whenever you're designing Frankwood, is this your first Forge in the Dark game that you've designed? It actually isn't. Ah. I, I started with a game called Echoes in the Dark that is kind of currently on the back burner due to uh, me kind of going down a rabbit hole with Brinkwood that shared some of the thematic DNA. It was a much more urban fantasy story. It was set in the modern tense, and 
there were elements of it that I really liked, and there were things about it that I just couldn't quite nail down. Um, so I do whatever I do when I hit a stopping point like that is I set it down for a while, I go away, I work on something else, and then I come back, hopefully, you know, fresh and better able to work on things that gave me trouble beforehand. You design some of your games with the San Gennaro co-op, mm-hmm. right? That's right. Is this a San Gennaro joint as well? Yes, yes. This is my first like big project with San Gennaro co-op, and that's been really great uh, just from this perspective of kind of the tools and expertise and backing that that affords. And it's kind of important just to a lot of the politics of the game and to the way the game itself is structured, that it comes from a place, I think, of trying to make something and trying to make it in a way that doesn't kind of feed into, uh, let's just say, some of the seedier aspects of uh, tabletop design and production. We, in a previous episode, we had Strush on a scum and villainy, etc. Mm-hmm. And they talked about working with a design partner uh, their design partner, John LaBeouf Little, I believe, on their games. How much of the design process is is shared in your games with, with people from the San Gennaro Co-op, or is it more in production? I think a lot of it is in production, uh, but there are definitely big chunks of the game that are shared and worked on by other people. Most of the world building, getting down to like the nitty gritty of the world, is a creation of uh, Brian Yaksha. Goatman's Goblet, I think, on Twitter, has really been responsible for kind of the creation of the world down to the cities, the towns, the places. We've I've also been working with uh, another designer, Oh Hybridity, on the monster design, because I remember I, I came to a point where I was like, okay, you know, this game's going to have vampires and it's going to have monsters. And the only idea I could come up with for monsters was Scary Wolf. <laughs> So I decided I needed some help with that. And Ohybridity came in and he kind of looked at the world I had built and had a very almost scientific approach to being like, okay, if this exists in the world, you know, then therefore this must exist. And because this exists, this exists, you know, like how would I fight a war between vampires, you know? And he had things like, oh, well, it's important to them that, they bring their grave dirt everywhere because like that's an aspect of vampire lore or you know oh you have you know a lot of these fey and these dryads out in the forest and you have these vampires that are kind of consumed by uh exploiting and destroying nature you know part of what they would be trying to do is kind of twist nature to their own ends and that prompted a lot of very cool kind of like organic and plant-based designs so i think I kind of painted a very broad picture when I was first designing Brinkwood. And then a lot of people came in and helped me get down into the details and come up with a lot of cool ideas and a lot of better approaches than I could ever do. That's something I've been hearing about quite a bit as far as like the importance of community in collaboratively refining a design and what have you. And I've, I've been interested to hear that from, from several of our guests mm-hmm. about how important that is. Yeah, definitely. Ian, I know you were less familiar with Brinkwood when I pitched the idea of interviewing Eric. What jumped out at you immediately about Brinkwood when, when you reviewed the materials? 
Well, the big thing that caught my attention when reading through was the masks. And I know we're going to go into those later, but I just thought that was a a really cool concept. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that was really catching my attention was all the stuff about running the war. It's almost like a band of blades was what came to mind. This this idea of, of really getting into the tactical and strategic elements of the war. Mm-hmm. and all the, the different enemy types, the courtiers and the enforcers and all these rules for making specific enemies strong at one type of conflict but weak at other types, I thought was really interesting. Yeah, definitely. We'll talk more about the masks, but it's interesting you bring up Band of Blades because that was definitely a major inspiration for me working on this. It really caught my attention to see a game that kind of laid out its monsters and its enemies and kind of its whole approach to how the game would actually be structured in this very organized way that was very easy to understand and very usable as a GM or as a player. And that's something I've always strived to do is build a game that is both complex in the detail, but also easy to kind of grok and understand. It's kind of been a bit of a journey because I originally envisioned Brinkwood very much as a game that hewed more closely to kind of like the military fiction aesthetic of Band of Blades, but through playtesting, I've kind of discovered that while those elements are good and they they form a good foundation, you know, you can always go back to, okay, you know, let's plan a raid or, you know, who do we need to take on next and kind of the more meta-narrative elements, uh, almost board game-like. There's a lot of narrative focus in the game as well about telling specific stories about characters, about people, about the way, you know, this essentially this war, this rebellion you're raging affects people on a personal level that I originally didn't quite anticipate. So that was that was really cool to see kind of an element of the game I hadn't originally considered come to life as well. I'm currently playing in Band of Blades campaign and Something I really appreciate about it, you know, it is a military game and in many aspects of it can feel they're more zoomed out Mm -hmm. than Blades in the Dark per se. And sometimes it can be less personal, but other times the story can feel quite personal because of the fact that you're on a track and there is this very strong narrative through line. Mm -hmm. Band of Blades is less of an open world game than Blades in the Dark, perhaps in some ways, but there's still a lot of room for fiction and that through line of, you know, we're, we're on a military campaign and we're going to a particular place can give you some really strong grist and, and material for building emotional stories. I wonder if Brinkwood might have the same, you might have had the same ideas in mind for Brinkwood. Yeah, yeah. I think it kind of grew out more organically than out of any particular intentionality. Just that recognition that stories kind of grow out of, you know, the more straightforward grist and that because there is kind of a strong thorough line of, you know, everyone knows what the objective is. Everyone's kind of starting in a similar place emotionally as their characters that it does kind of like pull the characters all in one direction, which I think allows a lot of interesting storytelling just in the different ways that is expressed, you know, because it's kind of an interesting balance in Brinkwood where, you know, certain things will happen that kind of pull the characters apart and kind of show the differences and the perspectives of, 
you know, someone's thinks it's more important to focus on like supplies and logistics and someone else thinks it's more important kind of to focus on, you know, actually taking combat to the enemy. So there's these kind of points of conflict that spring up even between characters. But in the end, you know, they all come together because they all share the same goals and want to work together to accomplish them. So one thing I've been impressed by with Brinkwood in general is how much community support you've gotten for the game. You have, you have a Discord server that's relatively active, and I've seen a lot of actual plays of Brinkwood, <laughs> that, many of which you've hosted, but many of which I've also seen like Jammy mm-hmm. host as well uh, and GM. How do you muster up that kind of support for your hack, your Forge in the Dark games, or your game in general? I know by the time people are listening to this, Ian will have finished their actual play with our podcast of his game. Mm-hmm. Maybe Ian could talk about that as well. But I'm curious uh, to hear from you, Eric. There's a strong element of luck to it and just kind of hitting at the right time for what people are interested in. But I did have like a level of intentionality um, when I was designing my Discord. And I won't say like designing my community, but like bringing people into the community where I kind of started by inviting people who I thought would be really interested in the experience and kind of doing like a soft launch and kind of slowly bringing people in to build momentum and before actually going public and kind of throwing open the doors and saying, you know, anyone who wants to can come in and play. I think it's really important to stay active, but to stay active in a way that's very intentional and very specific. I I feel like I'm speaking in a lot of generalities, And the luck part, though, is like you'll find, if you're lucky, certain people that are kind of like evangelists for your game or for your hack. I was really lucky. I went to Big Bad Con and uh, I met a woman named Veronica who was kind of local to me, who had a lot of fun playing the game and told all her friends about it and all her friends wanted to play. So they all joined the server. Jammy has been a big evangelist, uh, especially in the gauntlet community if there's any popularity it's mostly due to just people that really grokked and clicked with the idea and kind of decided on their own to go out and get other people interested in it which was really cool and really rewarding and i saw my role as just kind of like supporting them in those efforts uh, and making it as easy as possible for them to have a positive experience and for the people who they brought in to have a positive experience. And, you know, I can talk about how important like community management is. That's almost its own separate topic, you know? Yeah. And I was just going to say on the topic of momentum that I think it's, it's also not just like the viral marketing element of them telling their friends and so on, but also just building a community helps really sort of build out the concept of your game as you've got lots of people who have played it and who really get it. That makes it that much easier for the next person to then step in and find out what the what the game is really about, more so than you can maybe even convey in the rules. Exactly. Yeah, I think a big part of it, you know, when I started out, people would ask me questions about like the world and things that I was building. And my answer would be, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> and there's almost this fan canon that developed around the Brinkwood actual play on our Discord, some of which, you know, has with permission, gotten tied into the actual game. So yeah, I definitely think having that community is both a blessing from a marketing perspective, but maybe even more so 
a blessing for kind of finding the spirit of your game and finding different ways in which people will interact with it and have fun with it that a lot of the times you aren't even really expecting. Yeah. Thank you for talking about that a little bit. I'm sure that's something that the listeners of our show will be particularly interested in hearing. I wonder if we might transition to our topic a little bit and talk about character creation because I really want to talk about masks. But first, <laughs> let's let's introduce the topic. So character creation in Blades in the Dark, if, if people aren't familiar, it's it's pretty quick. It's similar to a lot of Powered by the Apocalypse games, if you're familiar, in that you're making a number of pretty discrete decisions. You do need to be familiar with the system a little bit, but it's it's something that the GM can usually guide people through in as quickly as 10 minutes, honestly, if people aren't thinking too hard about their decisions for a one shot mm -hmm. or something like that. And in Blades, you know, the biggest decision, of course, is what playbook you're going to be playing. Are you going to be playing a sneaky lurk? Are you going to be playing a wild leech? That is pretty true for a lot of hacks as well. I, I notice a lot of people keeping the playbook format. My understanding is that Brinkwood does it a little bit differently. Do you want to talk about that? So I've been a big fan of playbooks, even just going back to games like Apocalypse World. Okay and kind of powered by the Apocalypse games, which Blades is kind of a descendant from, because they are very pick-up-and-play. They give very neat, discrete aspects of, like, here is who your character is and here are their mechanics. But I found in kind of long-term play in Blades and, you know, the other hacks I've worked on, that they can kind of turn a little bit stale. Like, there is definitely a sense of development and progression, but a lot of the times when I would run a campaign, you know, at about like the halfway mark narratively, someone would come to me and say, yeah, I think my character should die. And I'd really want to play this other playbook, you know, well, you know, like I, I think their story's pretty much run and, you know, I'm not really having fun with them as much. So, yeah, we should just kill them off and I'll come back as someone new. And uh, I found that really funny both in the way that I GM that like my games are so non-lethal for a supposedly, you know, kind of lethal game like Blades that <laughs> my players would come to me and ask to die. But also that it was kind of an interesting point where playbooks do kind of lock you into a focus sometimes. And even just when I was playtesting games at cons and one shots, a lot of the discussion around playbooks was okay, here's my character. Okay, guys, let's let's discuss how we're going to divvy up our points. You know, does someone have skirmish covered? Does someone have survey covered? Does someone have a tune covered? You know, we want to make sure we're covering all our bases so that, you know, no matter what the GM throws at us, we'll be prepared. And while I do think that's a really valid approach and it's a cool game to work in, the thing I really want to do and the reason I came up with masks is I wanted to add more flexibility to that. The idea that your character is a person and kind of the more heroic aspects they take on are more flexible and malleable. So in the lore of the game, you know, you have your character who has their background and their upbringing um, and their action dots and all that. But on the other side of it, there's also these masks, which are basically forged out of this fey magic and essentially imbue aspects supernatural abilities and talents onto your character when you wear them. And because they can be taken off and changed, you know, one session you might be wearing the mask of violence and be 
kind of playing the more traditional role of like a cutter in Blades in the Dark. And, you know, if you're not really feeling that or in the next session, you know, the crew wants to do more of a sneaky mission where maybe they won't need violence, you can instead put on a mask uh, like the Mask of Lies, which is a more social mask, which is more like a face character. And it kind of lends that flexibility while still allowing you to have kind of this long-term character that is progressing and growing. And actually one fun part that I didn't realize until I started playtesting is that characters will kind of develop relationships with the masks that can kind of almost be a little antagonistic at times. Hmm. Like people will say, no, 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 fuck the mask of riot you know he let me down last time my roles were trash with that he goes in the in the shame box uh i'm gonna i'm gonna go back to violence because he's never let me down or she's never let me down which i thought was kind of this interesting level of both interplayer and kind of inter mechanical dialogue with the systems which i thought was really fun the continuity of character i've seen is really valuable like, in Death Wish, you definitely go through a cycle of, of characters with them dying or retiring or what have you, mm -hmm. uh, but I put in a lot of effort to make sure that they can always pass on their relationship with NPCs and everything to their next character. And so it sounds like you've you've given the players the tools to do that while changing up their mechanics frequently. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that's really important. I think that's a really cool way of doing it, too, is showing kind of their impact on the world the impact on NPCs. Um, so that sounds super interesting as well. I think I took a more direct approach in that I was just like, no, your main character is like this. And if you want to change your mechanics, you know, you can do it at any time. Yeah, definitely. I think it's, it's important to role playing games in general, almost that you have that kind of continuity of who your character is and, you know, that they can have, a full arc, so to speak. Have you ever seen a character develop like an antagonistic relationship with masks or, or even like break a mask or some, or do something wild oh, yeah. like that? In oh the fiction? yeah. Yeah. It's pretty fun. Jamie is kind of the queen of running games where like the masks piss people off or the masks kind of get people into trouble. So yeah, we've had people take uh, what I call mask bargains that end with them literally breaking the mask in half and, you know, having to do long-term projects to maybe try and stitch it back together or people, you know, swearing off masks for the rest of their career because of, you know, incidents and trouble that they've gotten into. Yeah. And to remind people, this is almost like a playbook. So yeah. you're, you're removing, you're removing that from the game when you do this in the fiction. Mm hmm. Yeah, it, to some degree. To, to some degree. You know, I've kind of had to ad hoc and kludge mechanics for it together because it's not something I anticipated in the base game. But I was like, yeah, you know, sh sure, you can break a mask. You know, this is this is your game as much as it is, as it is mine. It, it's definitely been a, a unique experience. And I think a lot of it comes through... A lot of the relationship building is in kind of those mask bargains, but it's also almost a really i don't know what the word to call it is it's like the relationship people develop with their dice almost in other games where you know you can have dice that you really like or you think are lucky or you have dice that are for a certain character and things like that where human beings will attach kind of metaphysical significance to anything and it's it's really cool to see them attaching the significance in this relationship to Again, what is essentially a playbook. 
I think we all can agree that masks are really cool, but I wonder if we could step back a second Mm -hmm. and can you go over what character creation is in Brinkwood? Like, what is the process that you you do to create a character? When you're creating characters in Brinkwood, I was really inspired a lot by an older generation of games, games like Traveler or even like old CRPGs like Arcanum, where the idea is less that you're coming in with an idea of who your character is and trying to make the system fit that, and more that you kind of build your character in like a series of discrete steps that kind of build your character through their life almost. So, you know, we started out with how your character looks, what their ancestry is, kind of what culture they come from. And we go into how your character was brought up. Were they a peasant? Were they a child of wealth? Were they essentially a street urchin? Things like that. And, you know, that can have a big mechanical and narrative impact on your character. Uh, And then getting into your character's kind of young adult life, what their profession is, what kind of people they met in their life, you know, before they became a brigand, things like that. And then kind of as a nod both to more traditional role-playing games and also as a way for people who are less like mechanically inclined to like very quickly grok onto a mechanical concept. Uh, I included these classes, which basically are kind of sets of how to distribute your action dots in a way that I think makes sense both in the narrative and also kind of gives your character a mechanical basis. So, you know, you can select a warrior class or a mage class or an alchemist class, and you'll start with the right mechanics. You'll start with the right points to do the things that you would expect that class to be able to do. From there, I get into the more narrative aspects. You know, you have your tragedy, kind of the point in the character's life that made them decide, you know, I'm going to leave everything behind and run away into the forest to try and fight vampires. (laughs) And as well as the hobby, which is kind of my nod to the vice in more traditional Blades in the Dark games. Because this isn't really a game about criminals, I guess. Uh, this is a game about like people. The idea is the ho- your hobby is the thing that like keeps you grounded. The thing that you do to kind of remember that you're a person who like has a life and blows off stress and steam that way. Last, but certainly not least, is this idea of what your pact is and the idea narratively is that when you decide to join the rebellion you have to swear an oath of some kind you have to commit yourself to the revolution in a very particular way you have to say you know i'm going to swear the pact of wisdom and i'm going to try and lead us towards a world where things are more carefully considered and things aren't just random and violent for no reason. Or I'm going to swear a pact of justice and I'm going to try and make a world that is more just for people. All the way to things like, you know, vengeance, like just someone crossed me and they've got to pay. And I think including these both gives your character a very personal sense of what their stake in the war is and also a very immediate goal to try and progress towards. And because a lot of the game's experience mechanics revolve around these packs and how you choose to honor them, both in the sense of like how your masks interact with you, because your masks kind of draw their power 
from the strength of your belief and the strength of your commitment to the cause, and as well as they draw their power and their experience from that as well. It forms both a narrative and mechanical base for how you, I wouldn't say are supposed to interact with the world, but how you immediately can interact with the world in a way that's consistent. Yeah, and I like how character creation can also flow right into the the creation of the shared character, the Fae, who sort of leads or sponsors your revolution, Mm -hmm. and how they've got their own goals and approaches that I think can be nicely tied into all of the characters' goals. Yeah, exactly. That was actually kind of a late addition. Umbral Aeronaut, another designer from Hello World, when he first started playing, he was like, you know, I really... I like these characters and I like these masks and I like the idea of the Fae, but I don't really have a concrete sense of who the Fae are and like why my character is associated with this Fae. So we did some brainstorming and we kind of came up with this way of putting together a Fae using a game called The Exquisite Body, and I call it Your Exquisite Fae, where basically um, you take a piece of paper you answer a question on it, you pass it to the next person, they answer a different question, and you build a story about your Fae collaboratively, but in a way where each person has like a very distinct and measured contribution. Because a lot of times in kind of collaborative fiction building, I always felt there was a moment where someone would not necessarily take over, but quarterback the decision-making be like, okay, you know, we're all coming up with this together, but what we're really going for is this, right? And I wanted to get to more of a point where it's like, no, everyone everyone gets to contribute. Everyone can have their own idea about who this Fae is, and they can be different things to different people, and they can kind of grow organically from this little mini game you play. And then the thing that kind of binds them together is the idea of which court they come from. Uh, and they're each based around these four seasons, spring, summer, fall, winter, which are very kind of traditional to how Fae are in games. But also kind of drawing from my own political experience, each one, each court has a very distinct idea about how revolutions should be fought and how rebellions should be won and like what kind of strategies and tactics are appropriate. And that's an idea to give kind of the GM, the players, a point of like, okay, here's what your Fae thinks about what you're doing immediately. And here's what they want you to do. And maybe you'll be in conflict with that. Maybe you'll be in accordance with it. Maybe it'll shift. I think I originally intended it to be a thing of like, oh, this is what's going to bring you all together, that you're all on the same page about this. But I actually found in a lot of playtesting that it was even more interesting when people weren't quite on the same page as their Fae. And they were like, oh, the Fae wants us to go out and do these military raids, but maybe what we should actually be doing is sitting down and talking to people. And the idea that the Fae is, like you said, kind of a sponsor and a mentor, but they're not your boss and they're not your mom or your dad. They're not telling you what to do and like giving you consequences if you fail to live up to their expectations. They're just another member of this that are trying to provide guidance and also kind of trying to understand a perspective that is very alien to them because there is definitely a difference in the way the Fae and the way the folk see the world. I love how that design problem was kind of 
tackled by expanding on and reflecting the themes of patronage that are already present in your game. Mm -hmm. You already had the themes of patronage with the masks of the Fae and what have you. But I imagine you've thought about how that patronage also reflects on the authoritarian aspects of the vampires as well. Yeah. Do you think about that a lot in play? Yeah, I think it because it's meant to kind of be not quite a mirror image, but like a subversion of how that relationship manifests for the vampires, because the vampires are very much a top down structure with a lot of sedition bubbling up from below where, you know, the head vampire tells all their minions what to do and all their minions immediately fuck it up because they're all trying to backstab each other and fight and get their own thing going and build their own little base of power and build their own little fucked up duchies and dukedoms and countdoms. <laughs> and the idea that kind of authoritarianism by its nature rots itself from within and kind of an answer to that uh, a, a different form of hierarchy, because a lot of people confuse anarchism, the idea that you don't have any sort of hierarchy or you don't have any sort of, you know, everyone's completely equal all the time, where really it's more about what hierarchy is justified and what hierarchy is necessary. So there is a certain sense of hierarchy in that, you know, the Fae have been at this a lot longer than you have. Uh, they've tried things and they know things that you don't know and they their advice is very valuable to you and in a lot of ways you're working and living on their land on their territory in their home and they're owed respect because of that and they're owed the privilege of having their ideas considered and taken with value but at the same time they aren't telling you you have to do this or else you know and they're not using the carrot or the stick, you know? They're not saying, if you do this, I will help you. The help is freely given. They will always be there to help you and try to help you make the best decisions, but they will also speak their mind and they will also voice their opinion and tell you what, to your face, what they think you should be doing. Just because I always felt in role-playing, it's a lot more impactful to have a character that cares about you and knows you and wants you to succeed tell you when they think they've messed up, that you've messed up, than it is for like a boss or a patron or the greedy, seedy crime lord come down on you hard because you did something that they didn't agree with. You know, you want to kill Bazo Baz. You're not supposed to want to kill your Fae. <laughs> Yeah, their authority is earned and considered, even if you don't always feel the same way they do, mm -hmm. as opposed to the vampires who are just killers. Right. Yeah, their power is drawn purely from this exploitation and this building up of power and domination, whereas the Fae, their power comes from experience and the help they can provide. I wonder, asking a question more generally to, to you as well, Ian, what aspects in games, in PBTA games and in Forge in the Dark games, what aspects of character creation do you really enjoy the most personally, whatever it is you're playing? I think for me, a lot of it is exploring the mechanical permission that's offered, the ways that the game encourages you to act and how you can you can sort of focus in on that. Like, I really like reading through all the special ability options that give you new permissions in a, like a Forged in the Dark game. If I can combine this ability and this ability and suddenly my character can do all these cool things that fit the themes of the game, that's really exciting to me. 
You like combos? Oh, yeah. I love combos. <laughs> I'm with you there, honestly. Yeah, combos are definitely great. Yeah, I really like it when games where the fictional permission they give you is something you wouldn't necessarily have considered your character be to be like good at or like know about or like be able to do. Because I find a lot of the times those abilities are the ones that kind of push you to consider your character in a, in a different way than you usually would. I too like thinking about these things and, and kind of subverting them a little bit or like trying to place my own pen down on, on the character sheet by twisting <laughs> the things I'm provided. I really love in Blades the, the list of friends and rivals for that reason, because even if it tells you what they do, they could be anyone. And I love finding clever ways to imagine those characters that maybe I feel like John didn't think of or what, or what have you. <laughs> right, right. I, I don't know if that's true, but there you are. <laughs> that sense of flexibility that you're bringing your own take and your own spin to the game. Yeah. Totally. I know that the gear list can also offer that opportunity at times as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely the idea of like an unusual weapon. What is an unusual weapon in this context and how far can you push it without the gene being like, no, 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 you can't have a ballista or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> sure you can. <laughs> hey, if you spend the downtime and prepare and, you know, create the asset or do the long term project, you know. Anything is possible. That's certainly that's a thing in Death Wish, right, Ian? A personal ballista. Oh yeah, yep. That is, a, that <laughs> oh, is really? definitely a thing, and it's a popular. Thing. My favorite uh, was a character that's been in one of my home campaigns who combined some of the natural special abilities, which are ones used to represent your your character being a species that's stronger than average. Mm -hmm. And so he chose to play as a sentient gorilla, and then he took the special ability that lets you carry, like, a cannon or a ballista, mm -hmm. and he's so strong that he can carry two. <laughs> and so he has just been going absolutely nuts with that, and it's great. Yeah, yeah. The dual wielding, the thing you're not supposed to dual wield, is always one of my favorite tropes. Yep. <laughs> that is pretty beautiful. I know one interesting thing I've noticed with character creation is I've tried to notice what people latch on to. Mm -hmm. And I know in Scum and Villainy in particular, so many of the people I know who have played that have wound up with all alien crews, even though that's supposed to be a rare option. <laughs> oh, yeah. I actually have a funny story about that relating to Brinkwood, too. When I was designing like the backgrounds and like who your character could be, one of the last options I added was Scion, who are supposed to be basically former vampires, like people who were raised to become vampires and kind of realized the horror of what that would entail and decide to kind of like shirk that and run off into the forest and join the revolution. And from my perspective, I'm like, oh, this will be a unique, very occasional thing. The idea is supposed to be that a lot of people choose to become the oppressor instead of you know, revolt against that. And then, you know, I go into playtesting and like half the people in every game are like, no, I'm going to play a Scion. Uh, I'm going to kill my dad. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, cool. This is awesome. <laughs> that is one of my favorite things about vampirism in Brinkwood is the fact that anybody, uh, even the most like blood drinking overlord can always give it up in theory if if they wanted to stop exploiting the people that is a choice they could make they just don't and i actually think that's much more compelling for your kind of story than the traditional oh it's a curse that you can never get rid of take 
Yeah, I played a lot of more traditional vampire role-playing games when I was younger, going back to like Masquerade and Requiem and White Wolf games. And those always had kind of the interesting twist on it, the idea of vampire as almost like an addict or someone who was kind of in an unenviable position of like having to be this way, which, you know, is fine for those games. And I, I just really wanted to bring it back around to the idea that like, no, these are meant to represent something that is exploitative and knows it's exploitative and could stop but doesn't care to. Because I think that's in a lot of ways a lot scarier. It's a lot more true to like the human experience that when you come across people that do things that are bad, they have some levels of justification to themselves about why it's not so bad, but they don't stop. The idea that someone could stop hurting people and chooses not to makes them much more of a compelling villain of so than someone who is basically forced to do bad things mm-hmm. i really like that about the brinkwood setting and in, in regards to you know when you're creating these characters you're gifted with these really special powers but ultimately you're still human and i think that's important for a resistance story in particular that you have a lot of humanity <laughs> left in you and and possibly to lose it. Yeah, definitely. I think a really core thing I wanted to get to was the idea that the thing that makes you special or the thing that makes you powerful is simply the decision to commit. You know, the masks are the thing that actually grant the power. You know, anyone could pick up and put on the mask and join the fight. The thing that makes you cool is that you decided to do that. You know, it's not that you were born to some great legacy or you're the best sharpshooter that ever lived. The mask will make you what you need to be. You know, you can literally be the simplest peasant from the humblest origins who just had a really bad week and got really fed up with the state of his world and decided to commit themselves wholly to making the world a better place. Thank you, Eric. I think we're going to wind down the show now, but I want to give you one last opportunity to sell people on Brinkwood and to pitch any other plugs that you might have to give to our listeners today. Is there anything you want to say before we go? Yeah, just please check out the Kickstarter. Go to www.brinkwood.net, especially if this sounded interesting to you. And the thing I always like to say when I do these interviews is even if this doesn't sound super interesting to you, even if this might not be your cup of tea, because I understand it isn't everyone's, please help us spread the word, you know, post about it on Twitter, let other people know, because chances are you have a friend or you know someone or there's a friend of a friend who this 100% will be their bag. And if this does sound really cool to you and you do get really invested in it, you know, please tell other people why you're invested in it, why you think it's so cool. That's part of the reason I really love doing these inter- these sorts of interviews is I get to hear what you thought was really cool, whether it be the masks or the way the vampires work or, you know, the revolution building. So whatever it is about this that sounds cool to you, please let me know or let your friends know, because I really enjoy that and I really appreciate that. But yeah, just once again, check out Brinkwood.net. And uh, thank you guys so much for having me. Of course. I look forward to backing the game. And I do hope, yeah, that our listeners, regardless of their ability to participate in the Kickstarter, retweet 
Eric's tweets and, <laughs> and tell people about the game. Someone you know is going to find it cool. Mm-hmm. The same goes for this show, too, Hacked in the Dark. We're a pretty new show, and we're trying to get the word out there. Please give us a retweet. Give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever your podcatcher of choice is. We really appreciate it. Just to add a little bit to that, I would say one of the beautiful things about the Blades in the Dark community I found is you never know what kind of cool people you're going to meet or what connections you'll be able to make. So definitely share this cast and you're going to find a whole community of artists, designers, people who are really passionate about this work and really passionate about these games and these hacks and are really willing and able to help you and other people out. So it's a really great community to be part of. And if you're listening to this and want to be part of that community even more, I would definitely encourage you to do so. Yes, please join us on the Discord channel, Mm -hmm. be it Brinkwoods or the official Blades Discord. Well, this has been a great episode of Hacked in the Dark, a podcast featuring Forge in the Dark games and their designers. Once again, I'm Justin. And I'm Ian. Ian, before we go, is there anything you'd like to plug? No, I don't think so. (laughs) Yeah, your game is done. You're you're done with this show. Yeah, the show's over. I'm out of here. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it sounded really cool to me. Will you at least tell me where to find it? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I've, I've got it shared on my Twitter. Uh, it's just at Antifinity, A-N-T-I-F-I-N-I-T-Y. And it's my pinned tweet. It's totally free for anybody to check out right now because it's in beta. And I'm just hoping to get as much feedback on how people are, are running it right now. You can also listen to episode two of our podcast to learn a little bit more about Deathwish, if you'd like. Awesome. And position and effect. <laughs> and, and position and effect. Oh, good. That's important. I, I need help with that, so I'll check that out. <laughs> <laughs> as for myself, as usual, you can find me at Mothlands on Twitter, and you can find my storefront at moth-lands.itch.io, where I'm I'm working on Mothlight. By the time you hear this, there will have just been a big update, I believe, and I'm I'm really excited about it. So check it out, please. Cool. Thank you, everyone. And remember, when it comes to design, we all begin our journey as hacks in the dark. Mm-hmm.